Welcome to episode number 14 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're looking at creating a global community around workplace safety and industries handling combustible dust and powdered materials. In today's episode, we're doing an interview with Ryan Fogelman, VP of Strategic Partnerships at Fire Rover. And we're talking about waste and recycling facility fires and fire protection. Ryan's got a lot of experience and background in this area. He's been doing summary incident reports since 2016, right around the same time that we started with the Combustible Dust Incident Database, and trying to generate these lessons learned from these industries and how to prevent these fires from happening and how to protect them from when they do happen. In the interview, we talk about some background material on waste and recycling. Um, in general, just mostly because I, I don't have a very good background in this area, I thought some of the listeners might actually find it interesting to hear how this process works. So we talk about what a waste and recycling facility looks like, what some of the hazards involved there, what fire protection might look like in this scenario, uh, what needs to be done to prevent a fire, what needs to be done before that to actually catch a fire at its incipient stage. And then we talk about how this might relate to combustible dust, how combustible dust may be involved in different areas of the waste and recycling processing, and how some of the lessons that he's learned from his incident reporting can really apply to, to our field of combustible dust and powder handling. With that, as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast, and I hope you enjoy today's episode with Ryan. Welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. In today's episode, we're doing an interview with Ryan Fogelman, VP of Strategic Partnerships with Fire Rover, a company that develops and constructs remote monitoring fire detection and elimination solutions. And Ryan's expertise is really waste and recycling facility fire management, fire protection, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Just want to say thank you. And Ryan, welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. That's good to be here. Thanks, Chris. So I first met Ryan kind of digitally around late 2016, 2017, when I started looking into incident reporting on combustible dust, building a combustible dust incident database. And at that same time, he was coming up with material on recycling facility fires, waste facility fires, and kind of doing some of the similar things where he was tracking the incidents that were going on, trying to make sense out of the, the information that he's getting. And over the years, we've kind of went back and forth and talked about strategies on getting this information, how to verify it. And I know he's sharing a ton of useful information within the recycling and waste industries. And I want to get him on the show today to talk about that. So Ryan, maybe as a starting point, can, can you talk a bit about your role with Fire Rover and just what, uh, what Fire Rover does? Sure. I mean, basically, Fire Rover started about five years ago, and it's a unique solution that uses... Uh, thermo optics. So we use a thermal uh, FLIR A310F and we learn high risk zones. So, you know, from a heat perspective, we're constantly looking for heat abnormalities. We're not looking for smoke or for, uh, you know, for symptoms. We're looking for the uh, heat abnormality. And once we see that or once that's the, the alert hits that it's past a certain temperature or that it's out of out of range, it'll go back to our central station. And at one of our human agents, at, we have a UL certified uh, five diamond facility where our agents will look at it. They will do a verification. If they see a fire, there's a communication protocol, but they also, we have a box on site that's a, you know, hundred percent self-contained. It just needs internet and, um, and electricity. And basically they can charge that unit remotely. The, uh, our agent can charge the, the unit and we can shoot and cool a hotspot we can, you know, shoot and put out a small fire or, you know, we can shoot a, about 10,000 gallons of volume, 150 feet, 150 PSI, cooling the, you know, the event in incipient stages. That's great background. I think 
as we kind of get through the interview, I've, I've seen what you put out there, some of the, the gaps that are involved in these industries. And I think we'll, we'll kind of loop back around to how Fire Rover fits in some of those. Maybe taking a, a sort of step back just in waste and recycling facilities, what are the different types of facilities? It's not really my background. And maybe some of the listeners may be more familiar than even I am, but there may be some out there going, well, what does this actually, what does this look like? What do these facilities do? Sure. And I mean, you know, I think when we look at, at recycling or waste in, uh, you know, in the U.S. and Canada, I mean, it's, it's a very large definition, right? And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that I learned early on was that, you know, in the EU, you have, or in, in Britain, you have the, the uh, EA, the Environmental Agency, and, and they really regulate these types of facilities. Australia does the same. But in, in U.S. and Canada, we really don't regulate. So the definition of what is a waste and recycling facility vary. Um, with that said, you know, if, if to put it really simply, if you believe in recycling, and you know the real goal is to put as few amount of materials trash or waste steel metals plastics inside the landfill as possible so if you really take it down to brass tacks it's you know how do we make sure that you know we do not throw material into a landfill that can be reused somewhere else so you know inside that space there's the traditional waste, so there's haulers who pick up your garbage and you know bring it to a transfer station, and they'll literally it gets transferred and pushed and it gets dropped into a landfill. But then you have material recycling facilities, you know that that'll take your curbside recycling. But on top of that, and you know what, what I think you know as an industry or as a as a as a public, we we focus so much on that curbside recycling. But there's uh, construction and demolition recycling. That's about 10 times the amount of material that doesn't go into landfill, um, which is really just these, you know, if you think a a building gets um, demolished, all that material goes in. Or if there's a big fire in a building, that goes in. And then there's scrap metal where, you know, you picture the cars, but it's a lot of different facilities that have metal. Um, So again, there's so many plastics, chemicals, organics. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty large area, but really the idea is, you know, anytime you're reusing something and you're able to, you know, make it into another commodity, that really is, a, you know, that, that falls in the recycling industry. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. And I never really thought about it from, you know, you think of recycling from your personal use, but also industrial uses. Uh, like you said, if there's a, a fire and, and they need to tear down the building, demolition, construction, that's, that's kind of a lot of material that they'll be hauling through trying to recycle so it doesn't make it in the landfill. You mentioned these these tend to come in on trucks or on, um, I, I believe, road transport. But what does a, a facility look like? How does that get processed or what steps does it go through? So, I mean, it depends. I mean, if, if we look at a MRF, which is, you know, the material recycling facility, typically what happens is, is that you have trucks that will come into a staging floor. We call it a tip floor. And, you know, they'll, they'll place the material on that tip floor. And then you have bulldozers that are going to take that material and they're going to put it onto a, a series of conveyors so they can, you know, so basically the goal is, is if you have, um, if you bring in that, the recycling, it goes into an infeed and then that infeed will adjust how much can actually get into the conveyors. And then it goes through a series of sort lines. And then at the end of the process, it typically goes through some type of bailing equipment. You know, so where it comes out in those big bricks that you've seen of like, you know, paper or cardboard, you know, in different types. So like, you know, that that's one process. But if you're looking at construction and demolition, 
you know, what you're seeing, they're typically outdoor facilities where, you know, you have these huge piles and those piles are taken and sorted on larger equipment. Again, some are indoors, some are outdoors, but most of these facilities are 30, 40, 50 foot ceilings. They're warehouse facilities. There's not a lot of, not a lot of walls, you know, and, and, you know, it's one of those that, you know, they might have sprinkler systems, but the sprinkler systems are, you know, up 40, 50 feet high. Okay. And that, that gives a, good background to the listeners on what one of these facilities look like. Can you go through some of the the hazards that would be involved from sort of a fire standpoint um, and, and maybe even an explosion standpoint, if that's, that's considered in that space? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's always been traditional hazards and I think the traditional hazards, you know, from a waste perspective or from a scrap perspective are, you know, gas tanks or propane tanks or, you know, aerosol cans. I, I think, the hazard that we're seeing now that is literally in all areas, right? Because whether it's construction demolition, whether it's scrap, whether it's, um, you know, curbside recycling, you know, we're seeing a ton of lithium ion batteries and we're seeing a big increase. And with, with lithium ion batteries, we're seeing not only smoldering fires, but we're seeing mini explosions. So, you know, one of the things we're lucky and we're, we're fortunate being in, in the shoes of Fire Rover is that we get to like have a front row seat into all these different types of, um, types of incidents that happen, right? Whether it's a forklift causing it, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a, we have video of a lithium ion battery, nothing else on the floor, and it just literally explodes, right? So, you know, there's just, there's so many hazards, but lithium ion batteries have taken the next level because, when you're when you think of a lot of hazards a lot of these you can control right you can make sure that the gas tank is empty you can make sure that if there's a large propane tank you can sort it or pre-sort it before it gets onto the infeed but when you're dealing with lithium-ion batteries i mean they might be the size of your hand they could be smaller and you know they also create their own oxygen so you know they can start fires in places that you know in screens and in conveyors and you know in the beginning end of the process that we've never seen before this has really hit us yeah and i hear it from our field in combustible dust where eliminating the ignition source is all is often the kind of go or one of the go-to solutions but there there's going to be an ignition source sometime it could be a lightning strike it could be a, a power outage and in waste and recycling now you have these lithium lithium ion batteries that really mean that you could have an ignition source at any any point in that assembly line. These these facilities, since you guys have seen so many, from a combustible dust safety side, I'm always trying to figure out, is this is this an adjacent industry? Is this an industry that really has a lot of the exact same hazards that you see in, in grain handling and metal working um, in wood processing? Um, so I guess the, the kind of question for you, from your experience, when they're sorting material on conveyor lines, when they're pushing around dump trucks, is that is that getting broken down and causing a potential combustible dust to build up in the facility or is there even any awareness or thought of that in that space? I mean, I don't think there's a ton of awareness, but I, but I think like one of the things that we're, we're looking at is when you get into metal recycling, we do have a ton when you're doing titanium, magnesium, and uh, you know, there's a lot of precious metals that are being recycled. And I, you know, there's, there's definitely players in the space that have, you know, a huge risk. I think the other thing is, um, you know, th- there's a ton of um, organics, right, or fertilizers that, you know, they're creating from recycled material. So, you know, like that shows more of the combustible dust hazards. Um, scrap metal yards, we do see, 
you know, a collection of dust. Typically they're outside, but sometimes on the inside you can get explosions. So, I mean, there's definitely the risk. I think dust is a big issue in a lot of MRF. So they're, you know, they're doing everything they can to try to, um, you know, to try to spray them down or use misters. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, I don't, I do see in waste and recycling as a whole, it's more smoldering fires, but we definitely do see explosions. Right. And, and I guess it'd be downstream from that. Certainly if you're picking out those metals and then they go to a processing facility, I, I actually pulled out an incident from a chemical safety board report that I sent to, to you earlier on titanium at AL solutions in 2010. And they, they had a, a mixer, they were mixing titanium and zirconium that were coming in. It comes in from the waste and recycling facilities as a powder and they were mixing in, in huge vats and the, the mixer hit the walls, caused a spark, caused a dust explosion um, and, and actually killed three and injured one there in 2010. And they had had, I think in 1995, a fatal flash fire in 96, a, a large scale fire, dust fire in 2006, also a, a fatal fire. Um, so even even downstream from these waste and recycling, you got to think about these materials, and and then like Ryan's saying with with organics as well, and other materials that are coming through. It's it's definitely a consideration. I want to dig into a couple articles that I that I read through of yours, and I know you're putting out a ton of information in the space, so I would encourage people to to look up Ryan, and we'll have his his contact information in the show notes. But there's there's two articles that I looked at, and then I want to talk about your your instant reporting. Um, one is and we'll include links to this in the show notes. It'll be dustsafetyscience.com slash 14. This will be episode 14. One of them is, is there a fire epidemic facing the waste and recycling industries? And that was with international fire protection. Another is how to reduce the fire risk profile of your waste and recycling facility. And I believe that is with waste management or, well, we'll have the link in the show notes to that. But you mentioned a couple of things in there that I wanted to highlight and then dig into. One is, you went through the NFPA reports and said they reported 37,000 fires, industry fires in the United States. And I think you put the number of waste and recycling at about 1,700 of that, but there's only 39,000, 3,900 facilities. So if you do those numbers, you're saying 40% of the facilities in the United States are having at least one fire a year. Do you get those numbers at least partially right from, from your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that if you look at the industry, when I first got in, you know, there was, if you had a fire incident, it was always people were pointing fingers in the industry at the operations guys or the health and safety guys saying like, Hey, what caused this? What breakdown in our operational process caused this? And, you know, what I was seeing was more of, you know, it was a very close to the vest. Nobody really wanted to share. And, you know, what, what I was seeing in the beginning was that there's an inherent risk of fires in this industry, right? So like the whole idea is, is that no matter what you do, good operators might have less fires and bad operators might have, you know, a higher instance of fires. But at the end of the day, there is an inherent risk of fires in what we're doing. And, you know, it's not just lithium ion batteries. It's been going on for 50 years, ever since we've been doing this and commingling this material and trying to separate it. But you know, I, I think what I've really tried to do was to understand what's going on in the industry and, and how prevalent it is and make it make it not, not a crime to talk about it, right? And now, I think four years later, what we're seeing is, is that when I put out a number like 40% of waste and recycling facilities have had a fire in the past year, you know, there's a, 
there, there's other people who are coming out, like the California Product Stewardess Council, you know, said that 86% of uh, waste and recycling facilities that reported to their survey um, had at least two, or they had a fire in the last two years. And again, I think a fire incident is an incipient fire that are put out all the time in the industry. Major fires where people are talking about it, and that's where the public reports on it and others. So, you know, I think 1,800, if anything, you know, my gut tells me that it's higher than that. I wanted to be conservative. Um, a lot of the fire uh, engineers in the industry would say that it's low. You said a lot of things there that actually hit on some some things that I've been trying to figure out. And just to bring it back to kind of a one major point, the reason I think it's important, well, you, you the the term they use there is that it, it's not a crime or it's not a, you know, it's not taboo to actually say that you've had these issues and to share that. Not necessarily even, it could be shared in, anonymously, just so that others can learn from it. Because every every small fire, every medium fire, every large fire is really a chance to learn how to stop that from having the future, but also a chance to learn, you know, how to react to that in a way that, that causes people not to be injured as these happen. And what I, what I thought about early this year with, with sawdust fires was it's probably kind of the same thing. I think 40% of facilities are probably seeing a fire every year. My concern is that facility A and B have fires all the time and they know that it's a combustible issue and they've sort of do cleanup and they do this and that. But facility C thinks nobody in their industry is having this issue. They let combustible dust accumulate in their facility. And then they have that fire that, that ends up being catastrophic loss because they have a secondary, primary and secondary explosion. And then they're putting their hands up saying, well, I didn't know that this was, this was an issue. When in reality, 40% of, of the whole industry is experiencing a fire every, every year. Um, so I don't know, that, when I read that in, in your report, that kind of went along the same lines, what I was thinking there. With the incident reporting, and we'll get a link to, I believe you've, done, you've accumulated data in 2016, 17, 18, so we'll get to links to that for the show notes, but what are you seeing? What trends are there in the data? What are some of the gaps that the industry is struggling with? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I used to always say to people, you know, when I speak, I'd be like, okay, the first year we just get a baseline. The second year, you know, we're getting a little bit of understanding from a trend perspective. And like, by the time we get to the third year, I can really start to do some serious analysis. But what was weird this year, you know, we started, we started off and we just saw a huge spike in fires. So beginning of the year was a lot of MSW fires or um, municipal solid waste fires. And, you know, everybody was pointing to there's a, 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 a green sword, you know, issue if you haven't heard about it yet. I mean, you know, I think most people have heard about the contamination that we've been sending overseas to, uh, you know, as China has been buying our paper bales and our, you know, recyclables material, you know, but it's, it's up to like 25% contamination. And like this year, a lot of people were blaming that. But, you know, I'm seeing in March where for first two years, I only saw 14 to, you know, 18 incidences. This year in March, I saw like 38 incidences. And like April was, in, you know, 13 and 22 in the prior years, respectively. And, you know, I'm at 30, 35. May was, you know, 16 and 17, and this year we're at 42. So, you know, I've been telling people from the very beginning that, that, Lithium ion batteries are not the only problem, but that they are a they're a problem that is like a wave coming to happen. And I feel like we've hit the wave. Now again, this year, you know, 2018 could be a it could be an aberration. And you know, we'll find out obviously, you know, as we get more and more data. And that's 
you know, the good, the answer is we never really have the true answers because we're constantly, uh, you know, constantly adding to it. Um, but I will say, you know, one of the things that I saw at the end of the year, because I'm putting together the uh, annual report that I typically do on waste and recycling facility fires, but like scrap metal industry fires are up 100% year over year. And I think that people think lithium ion batteries are an issue in a lot of different industries. But when you look at scrap metal like in, and construction and demolition, you don't think that when a building burns down and they have an, you know, and they have a, a nest in it or a, uh, you know, a temperature gauge inside that is a lithium ion battery. So all that material is getting into the big stuff too, not just, you know, Joe Q public who throws their iPad into a, you know, curbside recycling bin. So, you know, I'm, I really, I, I don't want to blame lithium ion battery hundred percent because again, we, we are, con- or I'm constantly seeing where it's not, but you know, that goes back to the education that we can actually see what's causing these and, you know, learn from it. Yeah, I like that. And I think in one of your articles, you mentioned that like a drier season than, than typical may result in more industry fires. We've actually seen, there's three cases to come to mind and I'll rattle them off kind of quickly so we don't eat up too much of your time. But um, definitely in, in, in the time of year where we're processing grain, when we cut all the harvesting fields, there's a big uptick in, in silo fires. That makes sense. Um, a drier year in Australia, I think in 2017, led to significantly more combine fires. So they're, they have dust that covers the motors, covers the machines. But that year, they had a lot drier grain, um, caused a lot more fires. And then early in the 2000s, it might have been 2010, I'll, I can include this in the show notes as well, but in BC, they had several sawmill explosions, much more than had traditionally been happened. And that was from beetle infestation. So the, the beetles had infested the forest, they eat down the trees, the trees come into the mill drier than they would normally, and then they're having a lot more combustible dust issues. So these large-scale problems that are identified, and some of those led to fatal incidents and, and many to injuries, can only really be identified if somebody's willing to do the work to track that information. So I want to say that's kind of one of, one of the reasons that we're doing the combustible dust instant database. I want to say thank you for doing something similar in the, the waste and recycling industry. So I think it's, I think it's important work. And I know it's a, from my experience, I know it's a ton of effort as well. Well, yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And I, I, I mean, you know, I, I think to get to like trends, I mean, during the summer, we definitely see a spike in fires, right? So for three years straight, I mean, we're seeing an uptick there. And then we also typically see an uptick in like January, you know, just based on the uh, Q4. So, you know, November, December, January uh, timeframes. But I mean, I think it's interesting you say, you know, drier weather, because, you know, if I look in the US, I'd love to say, okay, you know, this year was a drier year on average. But then if I go to specific areas like Florida, Florida's drier during the winter than during the summer. So, you know, we like the idea is to be able to start to really look at like where those trends happen and if they're really playing true or holding true based on what we think. But again, I mean, there's only so much time in the day. So, you know, it's like, I I think we have ideas at the same time. It's, uh, you know, it's it's sometimes it's hard to prove them outside of a, a, from an economic perspective. Right. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the fight that we're trying to do. I, I want to take it back to something that I, I've seen you present on before, and that's the stages involved in an incident. And I don't have the terminology right, so I'll have to get you to 
kind of correct me, but I think there's sort of this, maybe it's a pre-incident stage and there's the, the time scale where you can prevent something from happening that started and then there's the something's happened, now we need to mitigate it. Can you kind of walk us through that process? Well, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's the fire development stages. And I think the idea is, is that like our goal with Fire Rover is never to have a major fire incident, right? Like we know fires are going to happen. And I think I have a ton of respect in, in, in education and trying to educate the public on, you know, not putting the, or putting the proper material inside, uh, you know, the curbside recycling bins. But, you know, really at the end of the day, I mean, you know, we have over 100 installations. We haven't had a major fire incident in any of the facilities we protect. And the reason why is because, you know, you really have to react in that incipient stage or the smoldering stage or the flame stage. And, you know, once it's a major fire incident, I mean, typically the fire department doesn't want to fight those. I mean, you're going into waste and recycling facilities that are traditionally, I would say messy, but you know, it's organized chaos inside. So it's like, you know, you never know what you're going in to deal with if you have ton on the floors or if you don't have any material on the floors or, you know, there's so many things that catching it early is really the way that works the best, you know? And so really I focus most of the, uh, I focus most of my attention on those initial 10 minutes from when a fire starts to when the fire department comes and on top of that, when the fire department comes, but when they can actually start spraying and really, you know, really wetting the material. One of the things that we've developed or, you know, we've created is called the pre-incipient stage, right? Which isn't part of a traditional, typical fire development stage. But the idea is, is that we're setting the tripwire earlier in the process than possible, right? The human eye can only see smoke and, you know, you you have some um, equipment that can see flashes, but really when you're trending heat, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, pixels of every single temperature, uh, you know, and when I see that abnormality and we get thousands of false alarms and, you know, the, but the one time we catch it is, you know, and you catch it early and you can actually cool it and stop it from, you know, they say a fire doubles in size and cost every 30 seconds or every minute, depending on you know, the expert, but really it's how do you catch it early and how do you make sure that you're, you have the best chance to succeed if the earlier you catch it. Yeah, I like that. And I, I've been fortunate to actually see a, a live demo um, or a video, a, a demo that was being done live, but broadcast over the internet of the Fire Rover system. And, and they have some really good videos that Ryan shared. But one thing that I didn't appreciate until I saw that is there's actually a, a, a person on the other side monitoring what's going on. Um, so if you have an automatic system, you're likely to have more false positives, um, which maybe in waste recycling isn't, isn't as big of an issue, but it probably is because it re- might result in shutdown. It might result in, in people uh, you know, being nervous or whatever. But with, with Fire Rover systems, I didn't realize there's actually a person behind there. So they can get started analyzing and saying, okay, well, it's not a false positive. It's, it's really an issue. But then even more than that, they can start sending the information to the first responders as they're trying to protect the system. The, the person there can do dispatch. They can send the information and say, this is where in the facility uh, it is. This is what stage it's at. This is how big it is. Um, when you compare it to a traditional approach where, like Ryan was saying, maybe three, four minutes in, somebody sees smoke. They call the fire department. The fire department now has to come in, wade through that material, try to come up with a game plan. Um, you're talking you know, half an hour before they're ready to get started, where with, with the system that I've seen you guys develop, you're getting started right away, but you're also feeding that information forward so that 
it protects the firefighters, protects the facility. I thought that was that was actually a really great way to to go about that. No, and I appreciate it. I, th- I think if you look at it, I mean, I I've been trying to like focus on no matter what you do to plan, most companies will plan for you know trying not to have a fire, and they plan for fire avoidance, and then they plan you know, for when the fire department gets there, but a lot of times they don't focus on what they do. And I'll tell you, one of my, you know, one of the biggest issues that I see is that a lot of um, companies will say that, you know, the, um, you know, that they don't want their employees fighting the fires, but the employees always end up being on the front lines fighting the fires because they're the ones there, right? So they're the ones grabbing the fire extinguisher. So, you know, it's an idea. I mean, we have these CAF systems that people use, you know, where you're at least giving them the tools to do to, to fight correctly. But, you know, there's also ways to have your employees not fight the fire, but actually, you know, set the hoses and set the lancer nozzles for the fire department's arrival. Um, and making sure that the fire department knows your, your facility and understands the equipment that you have. And then there's that communication. So I think one of the things you just said, I mean, it's like our system allows that communication between the general manager, between the fire department and between, you know, obviously the system that we have inside. So, you know, it just, it gives people a lot more material, but it allows you to really, you know, drive your solution from a central location versus, you know, traditional fire alarm goes off and the fire department comes and, you know, again, most companies don't plan for for that time. That's why they're so shocked after you know after they they see their buildings, um, you know, kind of burn to the ground, and you know that's when they really start to plan. So it just needs to be more proactive. No, I really like that. I really like the the concept and the idea as well. We're kind of getting towards the end of the end of the interview. I don't want to take too much of your time, but is there any any other one kind of topic or one thing you want to you want to leave the listeners with today with regards to to waste and recycling facility fires? Sure. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the, the major thing that I see, again, is that, you know, as a public, we only see what's in the newspaper. So, you know, we're really focused on curbside recycling, right? And, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people will say that, you know, instead of, of recycling correctly, you know, you, you'd really just throw whatever you can in your waste and recycling facility so that, you know, that, that you don't necessarily have to deal with it. But, you know, the waste and recycling facilities, they're dealing with it, right? So I think, you know, that's one point, which is, you know, everybody at home needs to do the best they can do to ensure that, you know, that they're, that they're recycling correctly. Um, I think the other big thing, you know, comes down to the fact that, Curbside recycling is a very small percentage of landfill avoidance. And I think showing the respect from, you know, I I think like the scrap metal industry gets a really bad reputation. When you think scrap metal, you think junkyard and you think dirty and you think, you know, they do make a lot of noise, but, you know, they're not that, they're, they're not what people see in the movies, right? They're, you know, scrap metal yards, yes, they might make noise and, you know, they're shredding buses and they're shredding, you know, these massive pieces. But, you know, that recycling does more for our economy than, or it does more for, you know, our planet than, you know, 50 million, you know what I mean? Anyways, I'm making an exaggeration, but, you know, so it, it's, I think w- w- we look at, at recyclers as dirty and, you know, oh, I don't want that in my neighborhood or, you know, that type of thing. And really at the end of the day, you know, like scrap metal, C and D, plastic, paper, you know, those are what's really driving, 
um, you know, the landfill avoidance, which is exactly what we all say that we want. So, and it's going to keep growing over time. And I think there's many important parts to that, but one of the important parts is we also need to keep learning on the safety side and how to keep the people in those facilities safe as they, they continue to grow. And we, we continue sending more material that way. Sure. And Chris, can I say one more thing? I mean, I think, you know, the guys who developed the the fire rover system, and when we first developed the system, it was developed for explosions, right? I mean, we developed this, I mean, typically in a waste and recycling facility when, you know, we'll use two to 3% of the tank. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's a lot of 20 second, 30 second, you know, spot uh, cooling of specific areas. So, you know, I think, you know, we're always looking for other industries and where the application of the technology works. So, you know, we just did a first rubber feedstock. Um, we just did our first fleet center. You know, we're looking at a lot of different um, applications for the technology that I think plays really well. Um, so, you know, definitely that's something that, you know, now that we've proven ourselves in, in one specific industry, I think, you know, the goal is not to necessarily get pigeonholed there because, you know, I think the technology and the solution works for a, um, you know, for a number of different, you know, industries out there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And well, if anybody has any thoughts and they want to send them along to Ryan, or even if you have a facility that you think could, could benefit from this type of solution, definitely reach out to him. You, his contact information uh, well, he, he's pretty easy guy to find, but if you if you want to get through the website, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash 14 for this episode. And his contact information will be there. And, and I've been sending some information his way about uh, wood storage and, and some different industries I think might also be applicable as well. So I would encourage you to, to reach out with him, with reach out to Ryan with any ideas like that. Yeah, no, and I'd appreciate it. And again, I'm always, you know, as you know, I mean, I'm I'm available and would love to, you know, I, we like to learn of the, uh, you know, the risks that are happening in, in, a, in a lot of industries. I mean, we, you know, in C&D, there is a lot of wood chipping, you know, so it's like there's pieces and processes of what we're doing that definitely play well in uh, in other industries. So, Well, I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge today. I, I know the, the listeners are going to really enjoy this episode and, and learn a ton about waste and recycling, about how this could apply in other industries, and just about some of the maybe even appreciation for some of the difficult and incident reporting, but also just some of these higher level issues that can be going on in these facilities and some of the ways to, to protect and prevent. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And I appreciate it. And like, I mean, I think one of the things that goes without saying is that, you know, I appreciate what you've been doing. I mean, I know we've, we've been in kind of parallel universes, but you know, you, you're, you're doing a, a, a bang up job really, you know, centralizing, you know, understanding the combustible dust incidences. So I do believe that, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm almost excited to see where we are in 20 years. So uh, I totally agree. And, and I appreciate that sentiment. And I'm just happy now that we're getting to the point where we start to compare notes over, over this three year period and say, Oh, this is the, this is the way forward, or this is the, the overlap. So I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll end the episode there. And I just want to say thank you again, one more time. And, um, any of the listeners, like I said, definitely look up Ryan and look up fire rover on either on LinkedIn or, or through the show notes. So have a great week. And I look forward to hopefully getting you on the, the show sometime later in 2019. Sure. That sounds great. I appreciate it. Talk to you later, Chris. That was a really interesting episode with Ryan Fogelman of fire rover. And I know I learned a lot about waste and recycling facilities, what the hazards that might be involved there are and how combustible dust might fit in. And just some of his thoughts from the insights he's gained in his incident reporting throughout the, the last three years. I'd encourage you to uh, reach out to Ryan if you have any questions or thoughts 
about um, his processes and, and what he mentioned on the podcast. We'll include his contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 14. And I'd also encourage you to visit the show notes and leave your own comments at the, at the bottom of the page. You can leave any questions, any thoughts, any concerns, and any ideas that you have on how combustible dust might fit in with waste recycling. How does NFPA guidelines fit into this scenario? Um, how does dust hazard analysis fit in? And these different topics that we have today, as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I appreciate you sharing the work, talking about the work across social media and visiting the website. And I can't wait till next week when we have our next guest onto the show. <laughs>